0: Section thirty three of Character. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. Character by Samuel Smiles. Chapter nine. Part D. It was not little characteristic of the ancient Germans that the more social and demonstrative peoples. By whom they were surrounded, should have characterized them as the nemic, or dumb men. And the same designation might equally apply to the modern English, as compared, for example, with their nimble, more communicative and vocal, and in all respects more social neighbors, the modern French and Irish. But there is one characteristic which marks the English people, as it did the races from which they have mainly sprung, and that is their intense love of home give the englishman a home and he is comparatively indifferent to society for the sake of a holding which he can call his own he will cross the seas plant himself in the prairie or amidst the primeval forest and make for himself a home the solitude of the wilderness has no fears for him the society of his wife and family is sufficient and he cares for no other Hence it is that the people of Germanic origin, from whom the English and Americans have alike sprung, make the best of colonizers, and are now rapidly extending themselves as emigrants and settlers in all parts of the habitable globe. The French have never made any progress as colonizer, mainly because of their intense social instincts. The secret of their graces of manner, and because they can never forget that they are Frenchmen. It seemed at one time within the limits of probability that the French would occupy the greater portion of the North American continent. From Lower Canada, their line of forts extended up the St. Lawrence, from Fond du Lac on Lake Superior, along the River St. Croix, all down the Mississippi to its mouth at New Orleans. But the great self-reliant industrious Nimec from a fringe of settlements along the seacoast, silently extended westward, settling and planting themselves everywhere solidly upon the soil, and nearly all that now remains of the original French occupation of America is the French colony of Acadia in lower Canada. And even there we find one of the most striking illustrations of that intense sociability of the French which keeps them together, and prevents their spreading over and planting themselves firmly in a new country, as it is the instinct of the men of Teutonic races to do. While in Upper Canada, the colonists of English and Scotch descent penetrate the forest and the wilderness, each settler living it may be miles apart from his nearest neighbor, the lower Canadians of French descent continue clustered together in villages— usually consisting of a line of houses on either side of the road, behind which extend their long strips of farmland, divided and subdivided into extreme tenuity. They willingly submit to all the inconveniences of this method of farming for the sake of each other's society, rather than betake themselves to the solitary backwoods as English, Germans, and Americans so readily do. Indeed, Not only does the American backwoodsman become accustomed to the solitude, but he prefers it, and in the western states, when settlers come too near him and the country seems to become overcrowded, he retreats before the advance of society, and picking up his things in a wagon, he sets out cheerfully with his wife and family to found for himself a new home in the far west thus the teuton because of his very shyness is the true colonizer english scot germans and americans are alike ready to accept solitude provided they can but establish a home and maintain a family thus their comparative indifference to society has tended to spread this race over the earth to till and to subdue it while the intense social instincts of the french though issuing in much greater gracefulness of manner, has stood in their way as colonizers, so that, in the countries in which they have planted themselves, as in Algiers and elsewhere, they have remained little more than garrisons. There are other qualities besides these which grow out of the comparative unsociableness of the Englishman. His shyness throws him back upon himself, and renders himself reliant and self-dependent. Society not being essential to his happiness, he takes refuge in reading, in study, in invention. Or he finds pleasure in industrial work, and becomes the best of mechanics. He does not fear to entrust himself to the solitude of the ocean, and he becomes a fisherman, a sailor, a discoverer. Since the early Northmen scoured the North Seas, discovered America, and sent their fleets along the shores of Europe, and up the Mediterranean, The seamanship of the men of Teutonic races has always been in the ascendant. The English are inartistic for the same reason that they are unsociable. They make good colonists, sailors, and mechanics, but they do not make good singers, dancers, actors, artistes, or modistes. They neither dress well, act well, speak well, nor write well. They want style, they want elegance. What they have to do, they have to do in a straightforward manner, but without grace. This was strikingly exhibited at an international cattle exposition held in Paris a few years ago. At the close of the exhibition, the competitors came up with the prize animals to receive the prizes. First came a gay and gallant Spaniard, a magnificent man, beautifully dressed, received a prize of the lowest class with an air and attitude that would have become a grandee of the highest order. Then came Frenchmen and Italians, full of grace, politeness, and chic, themselves elegantly dressed, and their animals decorated to the horns, with flowers and colored ribbons harmoniously blended. And last of all came the exhibitor who was to receive the first prize, a slouchy man, plainly dressed, with a pair of farmer's gaiters on, and without even a flower in his buttonhole. "'Who is he?' asked the spectators. "'Why, he is an Englishman,' was the reply. "'The Englishman! That, the representative of a great country!' was the general exclamation. But it was the Englishman all over. He was sent there not to exhibit himself— but to show the best beast and he did it carrying away the first prize yet he would have been nothing the worse for the flower in his buttonhole to remedy this admitted defect of grace and want of artistic taste in english people a school has sprung up amongst us for the more general diffusion of fine art the beautiful as now its teachers and preachers and by some it is almost regarded in the light of religion. The beautiful is the good, the beautiful is the true, the beautiful is the priest of the benevolent are among their texts. It is believed that by the study of art the tastes of the people may be improved, that by contemplating objects of beauty their nature will become purified, and that by being thereby withdrawn from sensual enjoyments, their character will be refined and elevated but though such culture is calculated to be elevating and purifying in a certain degree we must not expect too much from it grace is a sweetener and embellisher of life and as such is worthy of cultivation music painting dancing and the fine arts all are sources of pleasure and though they may not be sensual yet they are sensuous, and often nothing more. The cultivation of a taste for beauty, of form or color, of sound or attitude, has no necessary effect upon the cultivation of the mind or the development of the character. The contemplation of fine works of art will doubtless improve the taste and excite admiration, but a single noble action done in the sight of men will more influence the mind and stimulate the character to imitation than the sight of miles of statuary or acres of picture for it is mind soul and heart not taste or art that make men great it is indeed doubtful whether the cultivation of art which usually ministers to luxury has done so much for human progress as is generally supposed it is even possible that its too exclusive culture may effeminate rather than strengthen the character by laying it more open to the temptations of the senses it is the nature of the imaginative temperament cultivated by the arts says sir henry taylor to undermine the courage and by abating strength of character to render men more easily subservient serios et ad mandata doctores. the gift of the artist greatly differs from that of the thinker his highest idea is to mould his subject whether it be painting or music or literature into that perfect grace of form in which thought bracket, it may not be of the deepest bracket, finds its apotheosis and immortality Art has usually flourished most during the decadence of nations, when it has been hired by wealth as the minister of luxury. Exquisite art and degrading corruption were contemporary in Greece as well as in Rome. Phidias and Incanos had scarcely completed the Parthenon when the glory of Athens had departed. Phidias died in prison, and the Spartans set up in the city the memorials of their own triumph and of Athenian defeat it was the same in ancient rome where art was at its greatest height when the people were at their most degraded condition nero was an artist as well as domitian two of the greatest monsters of the empire if the beautiful had been the good commodus must have been one of the best of men but according to history he was one of the worst again the greatest period of modern roman art was that in which pope leo x flourished of whose reign it has been said that profligacy and licentiousness prevailed amongst the people and clergy as they had done almost uncontrolled ever since the pontificate of alexander the sixth in like manner the period in which art reached its highest point in the low countries was that which immediately succeeded the destruction of civil and religious liberty and the prostration of national life under the despotism of spain if art could elevate a nation and the contemplation of the beautiful were calculated to make men the good then paris ought to contain a population of the wisest and best of human beings rome also is a city of great art and yet there the virtus or valor of the ancient romans has characteristically degenerated into virtu or a taste for knick-knacks, whilst, according to recent accounts, the city itself is inexpressibly foul. Art would sometimes even appear to have a close connection with dirt. And it is said of Mr. Ruskin that when searching for works of art in Venice, his attendant in his explorations would sniff an ill odor, and when it was strong would say, quote, now we are coming to something very old and fine meaning an art a little common education in cleanliness where it is wanting would probably be much more improving as well as wholesome than any amount of education in fine art ruffles are all very well but it is folly to cultivate them to the neglect of the shirt whilst therefore grace of manner politeness of behaviour elegance of demeanor, and all the arts that contribute to make life pleasant and beautiful are worthy of cultivation, it must not be at the expense of the more solid and enduring qualities of honesty, sincerity, and truthfulness. The fountain of beauty must be in the heart more than in the eye, and if art do not tend to produce beautiful life and noble practice, it will be of comparatively little avail. Politeness of manner is not worth much unless accompanied by polite action. Grace may be but skim deep, very pleasant and attractive, and yet very heartless. Art is a source of innocent enjoyment and an important aid to higher culture, but unless it leads to higher culture, it will probably be merely sensuous. And when art is merely sensuous, it is enfeebling and demoralizing rather than strengthening or elevating. Honest courage is of greater worth than any amount of grace. Purity is better than elegance, and cleanliness of body, mind, and heart than any amount of fine art. In fine, while the cultivation of the graces is not to be neglected, it should ever be held in mind that there is something far higher and nobler to be aimed at greater than pleasure, greater than art, greater than wealth, greater than power, greater than intellect, greater than genius, and that is purity and excellence of character. Without a solid, sterling basis of individual goodness, all the grace, elegance, and art in the world would fail to save or to elevate a people. End of section 33